Growing older is something that happens to us all. And those of us who are growing older are increasing in number. Our population is aging. There's a greater demand on services for those growing older, including legal services. And that's why we have a growing area of law called elder law. Hi, I'm Catherine Henry, Principal at Catherine Henry Lawyers. And in this episode of Law Matters, we're looking at the aspects of the law that impact on those growing older. There's so much to talk about when it comes to older people and their rights, from retirement and aged care accommodation, to helping older people with decision-making, and then funding the whole system and the implications for the quality of care. To talk through the world of elder law, I'm very lucky to be joined today by one of the country's foremost elder law experts, Rodney Lewis, AM. Rodney was bestowed with an AM uh, earlier in the year, and the press around the time described him as a trailblazer in this area. Rodney practices as a solicitor in a Sydney firm called Elder Law Legal Services. And in addition to his work as a solicitor, Rodney is a writer, and he wrote the first legal text in the country for teachers and students of Elder Law. He also taught a course in Elder Law that was at the time the only such course taught in Australian universities. So, Rodney, thanks so much for joining me on Law Matters today. That's a pleasure, Catherine. Thank you. So, Rodney, can I ask you first to tell us what is covered in the field of elder law? It seems to me that it's still a bit of a mystery and some lawyers promote themselves as practising in elder law, but in reality, what they do is wills and estates and probate matters. Would you describe that as elder law? Well, I would. Uh, it's included in elder law, but elder law, um, as if you'll forgive me, as I defined it when I wrote the book, is is much broader than that. To begin with, um, there's policy making in uh, many areas of elder law. Obviously, the foremost is probably aged care um, coming from the Commonwealth, but the states and territories have uh, various. Uh, laws, um, for example, capacity and delegation legislation, which leads to their various civil and administrative tribunals for powers of attorney and guardianship appointments. Um, so that's just one example. Uh, then, of course, there's the legislation uh, in each of the jurisdictions of Australia and the Commonwealth, uh, Again, just uh, mainly aged care, but the Privacy Act has some impact on that. Health health privacy matters. Um, then, of course, there's the uh, issue of promises which are made and then broken and which then find the promisee and the promisor on the front steps of the local Supreme Court. Um, so that's a big part of uh, elder law. You're talking about um, accommod- shared accommodation or granny flats and those. That's of- that's certainly one of them. But but then there's um, there's uh, promises. For example, uh, I was looking at some last night. Um, uh, promises made by parents to their to their adult children. The effect of which is often well, you keep working from uh, from dawn to dusk and beyond. We, we don't pay you much now, but that's because we're promising to leave you um, or maybe even retire and give you the family business. Well, of course, then events intervene and the family business isn't given and the son or the daughter then brings a claim in the Supreme Court. So that that's 
promises made and promises broken, and that's there's an awfully long list of those if you if you care to prune the uh, the law reports. Um, then we've got um, liability issues. They're, again, they arise mainly out of aged care. Uh, they involve things like pressure wounds and uh, restraint and medication error, and they in turn give rise to uh, the potential for claims for harm and injury. And you would know that um, in, in your practice, of course. Uh, then there's life and death. Um, and I actually found that fascinating when I, when I was writing the book. Um, the law uh, draws the line between life and death in many instances. Um, and that occurs, for example, in um, cases involving withdrawal of treatment where um, you might have a close relative, even a mother or a father, a parent, um, and the children um, are called in to have a, a family conference and or just to say goodbye. There was a case maybe, I think, about 12 or so years ago where in, uh, in one instance there was a family conference at a, a well-known um, hospital in Sydney and uh, one of the uh, family decided that uh, her brother was in fact not ready to have the uh, so-called tap turned off um, and uh, she decided that she would go to the Supreme Court. She literally knocked on the doors of the Supreme Court on a Sunday. The attendant let her in. Uh, the attendant called the duty judge. And the upshot of that was that the duty judge told the attendant, ring the CEO of the hospital and ask him or her to be in my court at 9.30 tomorrow morning. Now, that's, uh, that's one example. It's an outstanding one, really, also, of how the law can work. But um, life and death, and, and the court can, in, can intervene, uh, of course, in that kind of situation. Then there's family law, where, where you've got um, the issue of what are the rights of grandparents to the, to access, uh, for access to their, to their grandchildren. Um, and, and often sometimes in relation to protection of the grandchildren. Um, blended families and will-making and uh, um, in cases where you might have contending people uh, who, who want a share of the, well, most often in these cases, fairly large estates of the parents and uh, one of the lawyers comes up with a bright idea well let's because you are married to Mr so-and-so let's bring a claim in the family court before he passes away that way uh, you can establish a very clear claim on a part of his estate so that's family law um, and marriage again elderly um, men and women um, who marry and who may not have the sufficient cognitive capacity to understand the nature and effect of what they're doing. I've had a couple of um, approaches on that, uh, on that line, very interesting um, and, of course, very difficult for the family's concern. Um, delegation and capacity, that's, of course, the familiar powers of attorney and enduring guardianship appointments and advanced care directives. Um, most people um, now understand at least part of the way those, those documents function, giving authority uh, to make financial decisions or, or even health care 
and uh, lifestyle decisions where the person concerned has usually many years later after making the documents um, has lost their capacity to make decisions for themselves and uh, finally of course uh, there there is the making of wills and the breaking of wills uh, and I included that in my in my book and I include that in elder law because without it <laughs> there's a huge chunk of elder law that that goes that goes missing Yes, so an incredibly diverse range of legal issues and disputes that uh, go so much further than um, not without denigrating the importance of will drafting and probate applications. But um, um, if you are a true elder lawyer, then there's a lot of work and a lot of separate situations and an interesting uh, litigious matters that um, can fall within the discipline. So just in terms of your involvement in the area, uh, you and I have sort of uh, been practicing as lawyers for some decades. I think you might have a few more years than me, just a few. But what is it that drew you to elder law, uh, given the work you've not always been a practitioner in elder law? I understand your wife has been an aged care nurse, but... um, what 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 were some of the motivations for moving in that direction? Well, I suppose there was a confluence of events, um, but slowly moving, a bit like a glacier. I was real. I realised in the late nineties, uh, I was moving towards um, older age and and re- and thus retirement. Um, and uh, I decided that I had done most things uh, in law um, over that up up to that period of time. Um, and I realised that I couldn't keep doing, say, commercial law and uh, property law, business law, etc., um, and of course wills, estates, and so on. Um, I couldn't keep doing it all because, as you know, all lawyers know, law changes from day to day in many, many ways. So I decided to have a bit of a look around, and and our my conversations with Noni, my wife. Um, Led me to uh, understand that there that all was not well in the aged care sector. This was in the 90s. So I looked around on the web and found that there were more than 4,000 attorneys in the United States who were practicing law, elder law, doing nothing else. And I thought, good grief, we're missing something here in in uh, Australia. Uh, we're missing providing a service. So that was really how I became interested. Uh, I, I also, uh, during my conversations with wife, my wife Nani, uh, realised that uh, there was a lot of, um, um, shall we say, harm and injury and uh, a lot of neglect and the, uh, the breach of, of, of human rights um, that uh, people who um, were in aged care would sometimes experience, and and that to me was an injustice. And since I had already spent decades in active human rights issues, um, both in Australia and and uh, in our region, I thought this is something which is right under my nose, and I haven't been aware of it. So that's why I started to focus down on it. Mm. It's interesting, uh, we would be lucky, I, I would suggest, to have 40 uh, elder law uh, el- attorneys in the country. Um, so I know that 
the US has a significantly greater population, but things are certainly more developed there, uh, it seems to me, and in Canada as well. And in the UK. And the UK. Yeah, it's interesting. Yep. So, and then you um, had an idea, given that um, there was this dearth of expertise in elder law to produce a text and to create a course. So that really set you up as as our, you know, one of our leading experts, as as I said in the introduction. Your book is now in, I think, in its third edition, or the third edition is in progress. Third edition in progress. Yes, I tell myself that every night. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big undertaking, to be sure. Um, do you think, just a general um, question, Rodney? Do you think Australians care enough about our older population and? And related to that, the laws that protect them? I do. Um, I, I think uh, everybody understands that if they're lucky, they will reach old age. And uh, when, they, when they do, their situation could well be quite different to that which they are imagining. Um, for example, adult children have a habit of moving away, even interstate or, or overseas, um, so that People who uh, imagined uh, having their family around them for support don't have that. I, I do think that they are sensitive. Generally, people, I think, are very sensitive to the stories that have been coming out of aged care now for quite, uh, well, for many years, for many years. Indeed, it moved me uh, in about 2012, I think it was, um, the ABC called me and said, can we come down and interview you about a particular case that, or, or, or event that had been reported? And, uh, and they did that. This was a, an aged care case. And I can remember standing on my front lawn, and I'm pretty sure my recollection is this was a late-line interview, uh, which has since moved on from the ABC. Um, and uh, I thought to myself uh, when I was describing... Uh, or my view on that particular incident in aged care, uh, I said, what we really need is a royal commission. And I thought to myself, gee, I wonder whether I should have said that. <laughs> in any event, I think that was, as far as I'm aware, uh, that's the first time anyone had called for a royal commission. But I may well be wrong about that. But nevertheless, it went on national television. In other words, the country was ready for it many years ago. Yeah, well, let's let's turn to aged care uh, because it is a, an, a topic and an issue that we've heard a lot about in the media over the course of the last five years. You talked about that interview in 2012. I think it wasn't until 2018 that um, the, the federal government uh, made the call for a royal commission. But um, in a in that period, there's certainly been a lot of awful stories in the press leading up to the Royal Commission, and those stories have continued and did continue during the life of the Royal Commission. Uh, we had the report handed down in March, and the current federal government, the Albanese federal government, campaigned very strongly during the election campaign on aged care. It's taken them a while to get started, but now um, they've launched a task force. Uh, they're talking about a new Aged Care Act. Where are the major issues in the aged care reform process and what would you say needs attention first? I always respond because that question has been bowled up to me 
several times and I always respond by saying, number one, I'm a lawyer. Uh, so included in the answer is obviously funding of the aged care system, staffing of the aged care system and, and upskilling, of course, of, uh, of the people who work in it. But they're not really legal issues. They're policy issues for the government and uh, for running their businesses by the aged care providers. What, when it comes to legal issues, um, then we look at things like um, standards of care and quality of care. That's important from, the, from a legal point of view. And I, I have to say um, that it, it was in a mess. Uh, I, I had counted, I think, somewhere between seven and ten standards of care in the what is the current Aged Care Act, soon to be replaced. And that, of course, is just a, if I may use the expression, dog's breakfast for a, uh, for a lawyer who seeks to confine uh, a standard of care to the provider who has perhaps fouled up in the way in which the care has been delivered. Looking at the Aged Care Act, then, there are several ways it, it is presently approached, and that kind of approach is really only being diluted by the new standards of care, in my view. They're just more and more confusing when it comes to narrowing down a standard of care to which the provider is committed by the regulation uh, of the Aged Care Act. Um, but um, what is never stated, yet it's been around for many, many years, is that in every contract for services, and bear in mind, as you well know, a, a, an aged care provider must offer a contract for services to the incoming resident. And same with, uh, with, uh, with home care. But um, there is never any thought given to the conditions which are implied by the Australian consumer law about quality um, of service. There are three sections, uh, reasonable skill and care, time, time for timely provision of services. So there's, it, it is a mess. It has been a mess. And I, I have been talking myself blue in the face, as they used to say, um, that, that these implied conditions must be acknowledged and, and that they will make it much clearer for um, everybody, providers, regulator, and also the residents themselves and their families, what the standard of care at its base really is. You're involved in attempts to reform the Aged Care Act in a way that will be more protective of rights um, and, and you know, to set out those rights clearly in the new legislation. Um, do you feel confident that the aged care um, minister and um, those advising her will do what's necessary to have a, 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 a good go at this legislative process? I have been pressing um, various things that I think uh, would be useful. But uh, insofar as the department is concerned and the minister, I'm, I'm satisfied that they are genuine in their efforts to reform the system 
two, but of course they've got parameters to that uh, that challenge for them, uh, and and they are, what did the Royal Commission say? That's the first thing. Uh, what is the policy of the government, which is the second thing, and that doesn't necessarily, in every respect, conform to what the Royal Commission has uh, wanted. And I wouldn't, I mean, I'm not one who would say, uh, you know, this is, the Royal Commission report is writ in stone and must be followed word by word, but the main one is that they have, a ver- they have to deal with a very powerful lobby group, namely the aged care providers, and uh, they will do, as will all businesses, protect their own uh, position. And they have been extremely good at that up to the making of the 1997 Act, the Aged Care Act, and, and will we'll, uh, do the same uh, for the introduction of this new Act. I'm sure they will have a very strong hand in what the ultimate outcome is. Um, and we've had a we've had a uh, a pretty good example just in the last couple of years about just how strongly aged providers are, aged care providers are. That's in the issue of um, the introduction or the the introduction of an immunity to providers regarding um, the use of chemical restraint. Is that what you're referring to? That is. Yes, it is. Uh, it's not just chemical restraint. It's all restraint, uh, so far as I can tell. But nevertheless, um, yes, in the, they uh, introduced at the very end, this was the former government, at the very end of a bill which was implementing uh, nine measures um, coming out of the Royal Commission, um, after the, the Act had been passed, um, the minister, through somebody else, uh, another member. Tim um, Wilson. Uh, it, correct. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I think we're both onto this. Uh, he he appro- obviously approached the opposition after the House of Representatives had passed the, um, the measure to say, uh, I would imagine, and look, there's this other uh, item here, ch- uh, and, and, and we, we, we want to tack this on to the end of the bill. Do you have any problems? Well, uh, in the event, there were no problems about it, and uh, it was tacked on after the House had been uh, had passed the bill, as I said, but uh, it was by leave uh, that the amendment was accepted by the Speaker. In other words, a majority of the government, then government, and the then opposition. So it was added, uh, and it is an immunity against um, claims, uh, civil or criminal, arising out of un- uh, restrictive practices and uh, the the bill requires and the act requires now because it was passed uh, that the providers follow some quite very detailed requirements um, before applying uh, restrictive practices and if they do says the legislation then they shall have immunity against um uh, criminal charges and civil claims. Now that is the most extra- probably the most extraordinary measure I've ever seen coming out of the Commonwealth. Um, and I've been in law now at fifty-five years. Next next year, it offers a free kick in effect um, to the aged care providers who are businesses, commercial businesses, and some of whom are even listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. 
Now, I defy you to find me another piece of legislation where the Commonwealth Government has said to a whole sector of business, don't worry, if you follow our rules, you can forget about the rest. The rest of the law. For example, the law about unlawful unlawful uh, restrictive practices, otherwise known as unlawful restri- uh, imprisonment, which we get, um, the law we get from um, the Magna Carta. So the Commonwealth and, and its ministers, as they then were, blithely sailed through centuries of the common law to please the aged care providers. But some of those, as you say, are um, publicly listed companies. Some of those providers and are extremely large. And um, from a historical perspective, um, those big providers, those big multinationals, were came into the aged care sector um, when the the current act was introduced in 1997. And it was um, a, a development that has not been well received by those who call themselves aged care advocates and associated with deteriorating standards. And would you agree with that? You, you can't generalise about these things. Uh, you can have uh, provider X, which might be on the stock exchange or it might not, but they may have 10, 20, 30 aged care homes. Um, now, if one or two of them are poorly managed, um, it's not... It's not so surprising that um, that might occur because if you're running a bank, you can't be absolutely sure that there are branches out there where, where people just simply do what they what they like. Although, having said that, uh, the the way that, uh, that branches of banks are controlled and the way that um, aged care homes, as subsidiaries of the main provider, are managed is is pretty different, I guess. But nevertheless, you can't. I mean, human nature means that there will always be shortcomings. I allow for that. But what I don't like is that uh, every time there is a a big disruption to the nice public relations arrangements that that there are, and, and there's some dreadful story which comes out of the aged care system, it ends by somebody, some politician perhaps, claiming, that, well, you know, we've fixed that problem and it'll never happen again. Now, I don't know how many times I've heard that uh, claim. It's meaningless. It's not very smart. Uh, It will happen again because we've got human nature involved in the aged care system. But, you know, we're talking about the most vulnerable people in our community. I mean, that also is a well-worn phrase, but it's true that people, when they take their place in the aged care system, are taking their place um, for life. It's a lifetime um, agreement for anything but a tiny uh, percentage, perhaps, perhaps less than 1%, who, who return to either their former life or they return to their family. That's a very rare event from my experience. However, having said that, I have had one shining example of a gentleman who was actually in in a locked ward and uh, and he just really didn't deserve to be there and I eventually was successful in uh, in getting him out into the community which is which makes you feel really good when you when you're able to do those sort of things 
Rodney, what's the time frame for the new act, um, given the the work that you're doing with um, with key legal groups? And um, it is interesting to me when I, I read that the task force set up by the government doesn't actually include a lawyer or an aged care advocate. But as you say, they are consulting. Um, the government is consulting and you're working with other lawyers. Um, the Australian Lawyers Alliance is one that one group, I know that you're working on the proposed draft bill. Um, is there a time frame for the finalisation of the bill? Yes, there is. The government has announced that they intend to uh, put the legislation uh, out for comment, I think, before the end of this year, and uh, uh, then it will go through the parliament in uh, early um, next year, and they plan to have it uh, commence, or passed anyway, but I imagine they really also mean commenced on the, um, well, 1st of July next year. And so there's a lot there's a lot of work to be done by uh, between now and then, a lot of arguments to be had, whether or not uh, the the aged care residents themselves and the recipients of care under the home care uh, uh, part of it, uh, whether or not they prevail with some of their rights um, is is another matter. As as you well know, the the rights which have been touted for many years about the aged care system and touted when. Uh, when residents enter the aged care system, being told that they have got their rights and here's the charter of rights and it listed all, lists all sorts of uh, things that uh, would be nice, uh, even in many, in some cases, rights that we don't have, you and me. At one stage, uh, 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 there were such rights. Uh, they then were reviewed in about 2018 and cut down and cut out. But nevertheless... Um, Rights have always been unenforceable, expressly stated by the Aged Care Act itself. And yet, the department and the providers have been talking about aged care rights since 1997, or even before, actually. But uh, 1997, when the Aged Care Act was introduced, there are no such rights. If you have a right and you can't enforce it, what is its value? But 1997 Act, um, introduced by then Prime Minister John Howard, uh, was um, had input from one of the one of the major providers, uh, Doug Moran, um, the late Doug Moran, who um, owned and operated a significant number of um, of residential aged care facilities. So let's hope that the future is brighter than the past 20 years um, and all of the inquiries that have been held uh, leading up to the Royal Commission. All 18 of them, yes. 18 of them, yes. So there's a lot to talk about in this area and um, and, and a lot of work to be done. And, um, you know, it's really important that lawyers um, who feel strongly about this area and it, it brings in uh, commercial law, civil law from the point of view of accountability for poor practices and and human rights it's very important work because as you've as you've pointed out we are ultimately acting for the most vulnerable members of our society rodney um the final area i'd like to talk to you about is elder abuse it sounds clear and we should know what it means but i wonder if you can tell us what is meant by elder abuse we often hear the definition 
that's promoted by the World Health Organization. Um, can you tell us how the law can be applied to address elder abuse in our community? Well, that's a good. That that's a very good question. Um, and uh, yes, I, I well, frankly, I can tell you how it could be applied uh, because I've been touting a, a law which helps remedies for elder abuse to be enforceable for several years now uh, because there's a big vacuum in elder abuse in this country because there are so few remedies. The only place in the country where that doesn't apply is the Australian Capital Territory, which actually introduced into its Crimes Act um, some uh, offences which, for example, including neglect, um, which uh, mean that there are serious consequences for breaches of what we would call the regime of elder abuse. However, if you look across the uh, the ditch to um, the United States, all of the other all of the states of the United States have laws. Um, which apply to elder abuse. Now, some of them don't have teeth, but nevertheless, they've made a uh, they've made an in- inroad into it and uh, provided funds for research and so on. But un- unfortunately, in our country, we don't seem to be getting past the research stage. Um, I think it's time now to recognise that elder abuse is something which we can clearly defined. I mean, as you say, there's the United Nations definition, which is which is pretty general and a little inelegant. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, as with most things in the United Nations, it's a product of reaching an agreement uh, with dozens and dozens of the United Nations members. So language and social policy and so on uh, gets mixed up. But with elder abuse, uh, I would think it's it's easy for us to legislate, but the attorneys general who've been, um, well, in my respectful view, been kicking the ball down the down the road, um, will uh, and have continued to do that up until now. And and so what happens is in elder abuse, you've got harm and injury, for example, in the aged care system. Uh, Harm and injury in the family setting when uh, there is um, abuse by one family member upon uh, the one of the elders, the parents, uh, or both for that matter. Uh, there are some fairly familiar patterns of behaviour, which one, which our, one of our Supreme Court justices uh, referred to not so long ago about elder abuse, and. Uh, it, it is a, a very serious social problem, and it's getting worse, not better. And that's because as we pass from year to year, uh, the baby boomers are passing away. The baby boomers, uh, as, as uh, you know, legend has it, uh, have got a lot of wealth, and, and that generation of which I'm a part, and uh, I, I think you're a part, you know, it, it has a, a vast amount of assets if you, if you want to start counting them. And they will need to pass to the next generation. And that is where we have elder abuse as the sort of the medium between the two generations uh, 
where the connection between the two generations does fail. Now, obviously, this is only a minority that we're talking about, but on the other hand, it can it can keep uh, our courts right around the country, um, you know, busy than otherwise they would be. So, elder abuse is all about intergenerational conflict. I, I regularly see people who will, uh, will who will break into tears in my office about um, the the issues that they need to to confront uh, with their mother, their father, their brothers and sisters. Usually, it reminds me of the many family law cases that I did earlier on in my career. Um, very much the the emotions uh, which which are generated by elder abuse are really very sad, very serious, and uh, and we need a tool. One of the main issues is, in my view, uh, respectfully, there are a lot of people committed to dealing with elder abuse, uh, but so far what we have been doing in that space is educating people. Mm. And unfortunately, you know, where we as lawyers see the the really uh, sharp end of, of elder abuse, it's when people come in and say, um, my sister, who had a power of attorney, has now transferred mum's house to herself. What do I do? Mm. Seems to me that we spend a lot of time as um, identifying what constitutes elder abuse and we me- need to move forward. We, you know, we've moved past that stage and we need to do, as a profession... Um, do something about it because, yes, it may well lock up the the courts in disputes, but they're disputes that need to happen. Rodney, I think you've run cases involving elder abuse. Yes. Yes. Could you give us an example of one that that you've run recently that will demonstrate the the issues and how they were dealt with by the court? Well, one of the tools that we do have is the delegation instruments. So the one that I just mentioned, and I've had oh, two or three of those those cases, <laughs> um, is, it, it involves most often the, un, the unlawful use of, say, a power of attorney. Um, and if we just talk about that, I think there, I've had two or three over the last 10 years of these kinds of cases where somebody will come to me and somebody has come to me and said uh, just what I mentioned. We are a family of uh, four uh, adult children. Um, Mum's on her own now because dad has passed away and mum has been really having memory problems for two or three years now. And I only just last weekend learnt that the title to the house has been changed from mum to my sister, who's the power, who's the attorney under a power of attorney. Um, what do I do? So in cases like that, you could uh, take the matter to the Supreme Court and claim that there was a breach of duty by the attorney. Uh, that's right. So the claim would be against the attorney from, from the mother, but of course, you know, the first problem, mum's got um, uh, a problem with her memory and, and probably cannot manage her own affairs. And, and that's a, 
that's a phrase that's important in in this context. And so, it would it may be necessary, although there are other ways. But let's just uh, imagine that uh, that means that we need to knock off the sister who's been playing up with the power of attorney and favoured herself to uh, then try and set the situation right. So that means, or could mean, a trip to the guardianship tribunal um, where you would ask the tribunal to review the power of attorney that mum gave 10 years ago when she was fine. That means also bringing the sister or the daughter into the tribunal and uh, there would be a hearing and it would uh, unfold that the sister had actually favoured herself and breached her duties as an attorney. So she would be replaced by the tribunal and uh, it may be that one of the others uh, might replace her. And then uh, the other would set set about righting the wrong by having the title returned to the mother's name. And so if you've got the power of attorney and you've taken it from the offender, as it were, then uh, it it may not be terribly difficult to do that. But uh, there are so many that can't um, or that uh, there are so many barriers to to, um, retrieving the the status quo, as it were, um, that it's just um, out of the question and they involve many times, the, the harm and injury that arises from aged care. Thank you so much, Rodney. You do such important work and uh, you've been leading the way. And I just want to thank you so much for being available today and taking time out of your busy schedule and, uh, and talking to us about the myriad of issues that arise in this very important area of law. So thanks so much. Oh, that's a pleasure. Thanks very much, Catherine. Thanks for having me. I'm Catherine Henry of Catherine Henry Lawyers. And if you need to talk to someone about the law that impact on those growing older, please do get in touch. My team will be able to guide you through the process and help you decide what will be best for your circumstances. And if you're enjoying this podcast, make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. This podcast was produced by Pod and Pen Productions.